Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind Listener Mail. This is Robert Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And it's Monday, the day of each week that we read back some messages from the Stuff to Blow Your Mind mailbox. If you've never gotten in touch before, why not give it a try? You can reach us at contact at Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Any kind of mail is fair game. Uh, obviously, we like feedback on recent episodes. If you have anything interesting you want to add to a topic we have covered on the show, if you have questions, corrections, suggestions for new topics, uh, or if you just want to say hi, tell us your story, or just share something generally interesting. Uh, any of that's all right, send it on to contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. All right, as we've been saying for a few weeks, we've been uh, working through all of the responses we got to our series on childhood amnesia. Lots of people wanted to share their earliest uh, childhood memories or other commentary on these episodes. And so, uh, of course, we still have not gotten near the bottom of all the messages we received on that, but we're 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 keeping on working through them, uh, doing doing a few at a time. So, Rob, uh, do you want to kick us off today reading this message from Colm, who has written in before, and we have called him Colm? <laughs> oh, wow. I don't remember that. Well, apologies, Colm. Colm writes in and says, Hi, guys. Thanks for reading out my very short email about the orca looking after the juvenile whale of another species. Oh, yeah, that was just a week or two ago. Yeah. This is my third time writing in, and I thought I'd give you some help in pronouncing my name. It's spelt C-O-L-M, but is pronounced column, like there are three columns in this spreadsheet. The Irish spelling is C-O-L-M, the Scottish spelling is C-A-L-L-U-M, and the English version is Colin. Uh, C-O-L-N. Anyway, I wanted to tell you about a very specific and very early childhood memory I have. I was in my pram, and I was being brought around to our local corner shop by my mammy. Yes, grown men in Ireland call their mum or mom mammy their whole life. <laughs> 
It's a small grocery shop uh, that is still there today. This was in late 1969 or early 1970 as it was cold outside, and I remember being well tucked in and setting up in the pram. My mammy parked me up outside and went in to get her shopping. I remember some kids hanging around outside the shop, and one of the boys was eating crisps. You call them potato chips. This boy gave me a crisp, and what I remember is that I had no teeth to chew it, and it felt hard and salty against my gums. This leads me to believe I must have only been between 12 and 18 months old. This this is just such a British Isles first memory. <laughs> it's got crisps. It's got a pram. It's got boys giving you crisps at the corner grocery. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, you both do Trojan work, lads. Fair play to you. And please do something about the subject of lighthouses in the future. I mentioned it to Joe a couple of years ago, and he said it was a great idea. As far as I'm aware, you have never covered the subject before, even in the Invention series. I think that's a great topic. Yeah, I guess we just never got around to it. Yeah, I don't know why not, because I'm always, I'm like you, Joe. I mean, I'm I'm always going on trips, and uh, I bet you you often find yourself at strange lighthouses. That's what uh, that's what I do. It's like if there's a weird lighthouse in the area, I'm going to go see it. So I wake um, up in the middle of the night. I am standing on a rocky shoreline, staring up at the lighthouse, and it's calling to me. It's saying something. Do you hear it? What is it saying? It's saying, put the mask on now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we're so excited about uh, the mask because we just we just uh, did, recorded that episode this morning. Oh, but also to summarize the end of uh, Column's message here, he lets us know that he makes ambient music and sends us a link to his Bandcamp page. Uh, of course, listeners, always, if you make music, you are welcome to send it our way. We, we can't promise we'll always have time to listen, but uh, if we get a moment, we will do our best. And uh, yeah, send us links to Bandcamp pages. We, we love music. We love Bandcamp in particular as a music hosting website. I'm, I'm a pretty big fan. Uh, so yeah. Uh, I listen to some of what he sent in. I, I like the vibe. I, I, I love a nice uh, ambient track. Lexiconofsound.bandcamp.com. Well, thanks for writing in, Colm. Um, I love the suggestion. And, of course, I love this, um, this tidbit of, uh, of, of, of very early childhood memory with the crisps. Okay, this next message about uh, childhood amnesia is from Jen, who says, Good morning. Love the podcast as a fellow science geek and trained neuroscientist. I have a few questions about your research into childhood amnesia. One, how does the growth of the brain impact childhood memories, especially the tripling in size during the first year of life? And how does the growth of subcortical, hippocampus, and cortical regions, e.g. language, auditory, visual, motor areas, also impact early memories? Well, Jen, I'm, I'm not sure of the full answer to your question, and it's been a few weeks now since our episode, so I hope I'm remembering what I do remember correctly. Uh, but I do think it's commonly assumed that rapid structural development in the young brain weakens the connections that form the basis of long-term memories. So whatever early episodic memories are made kind of fall prey to, the, uh, to that expansion and development process you talked about. So I think this would entail both the, the rapid growth and the plasticity of the young brain uh, that, that probably directly undermines the stability of episodic memories formed in early life. The metaphor we used in the episode, and I, I'm still not sure if this is the best metaphor. I'd be interested in getting 
feedback from more neuroscientists. Um, but we were thinking about it sort of like trying to rebuild or renovate a house and moving into the house at the same time. So you, you might be like making memories in terms of setting up furniture and decorations in a certain arrangement. But then if you have to like rebuild the walls and, and rebuild a room and make it bigger and add on new things to the house, you will probably also have to end up rearranging all of the things you've moved in as the, as the house is rebuilt. Okay, this is uh, Jen's second question. Most of the events I remember from childhood involve getting into some kind of trouble. I do remember many happy times, too, as well as some moments within daily routines, but I cannot remember day-to-day -day routines at all. For example, when I got up in the morning to go to school, did my mom fix me breakfast? Did I fix it myself? Who chose my clothes and helped me get dressed during early primary years? I remember snippets from upper elementary school, much like the research you reported supports, and looking at old photos jogs some memories, but I find it fascinating that such daily routine events occurring over years of my childhood would be gone. Is it because they are routine and unimportant? Is it because I was cared for, well-fed and dressed, i.e. growing up in a secure, safe and comfortable environment? Uh, Jen, another good question. I, I don't know for sure, but... This does connect to one of the things that we talked about in our interview with uh, David Eagleman, who is a neuroscientist. And, um, you know, when we were talking with him, he brought up the idea that, of course, the brain records fewer memories for event sequences that we perceive as routine and mundane. And studies show the brain tends to increase the density of memory detail for events that are unusual and or highly salient for some reason. Maybe they have intense social salience or survival salience. Uh, also, some of the studies we looked at made it seem like events that are actively remembered more often are more likely to be remembered for a longer time. They're less likely to just fade away into nothingness, with the caveat being that revisiting memories through storytelling or reminiscing often introduces changes to them. Hmm. But that seems like a, at least a, a partial two-part explanation for why mundane routine events would be remembered less. You know, they're less likely to be recorded in detail to begin with because they're not these unusual or highly salient events. And then second, routine events are not likely to be revisited in memory very often, which makes them more susceptible to fading over time. Again, as uh, Raul Julia put it uh, in, in the role of M. Bison, for me, it was <laughs> Tuesday, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, that's one of the things about uh, we discussed before, like going on a vacation. Um it uh, messes with your routine or it forces you to take on new routines. And that routine may, and this may apply to something as like, oh, well, on this trip, I'm going to read first thing in the morning, whereas usually I don't have time, usually I don't have time for that, that sort of thing. Or it can just be like, oh, well, I'm making my coffee here instead of, instead of where I normally make it. I'm using a slightly different machine. It introduces all of these novel uh, factors and new factors and altered factors into into your existing routines and allows the fostering of new routines. And therefore, the whole trip will then be more novel than just your average daily week, uh, even though, you know, we find a lot of comfort in routine. Uh, yeah. It doesn't mean that the, the comfortable moments are as memorable. But all that novelty means you're going to have way more detailed memories about your vacation than you would an equivalent length of time where you were just doing your normal thing, staying home and working or whatever. Yeah.
Uh, Jen's third question, uh, what about our memory or lack of memory surrounding traumatic events in childhood? How does our brain choose to block or embed traumatic memories? Parentheses, this is a huge area of research in recent years, and as a current elementary school teacher in a low-income community, the impact of trauma on behavior, uh, on behavior and cognition is an ever-present concern. Uh, Jen, I would say, yeah, that is, uh, I don't know, but that is a very interesting and very important question. Finally, Jen says, most of the research I did as a neuroscientist involved language processing in adults and studying impacts of brain trauma on disruption in language. So my knowledge of the memory literature is lacking and focused on adult memory. Plus, since switching careers, I haven't kept up with current research. I know there are several theories of how our memories, especially episodic memories, are, quote, organized or, quote, stored in the brain. So my last question is, how do these theories inform childhood amnesia? Thanks for reading this. I don't expect you to answer these questions. Phew, well, that's a load off. Uh, but rather raise them as things to keep in mind uh, as you work on future episodes of the topic. Well, uh, th this is kind of out of order, isn't it? Now that we're reading this after <laughs> uh, we finish the series. But yeah, this does raise important questions and maybe we will return to the topic in the future. This will give us more, more things to plow into. Absolutely. All right, what do we have next? Looks like we have some comments regarding our episode or episodes, uh, I guess at this point, on the telephone game. Right. So, well, I guess first of all, I want to summarize multiple responses we got concerning the version of the telephone game that you play by switching back and forth between text and drawings. Uh, so the game might begin with a text phrase and then somebody has to draw that phrase and then the next player has to look at the picture only and come up with what text that drawing is supposed to represent and then you just go back and forth. Yeah. Uh, three, oh, sorry, what? I was just going to say, I think what the title that we threw out there for it was something like Cat Vomit poop machine or something poop, like you cat yeah yeah something just horrible that we just had to read multiple times uh, off of our notes and it turns out there were better names for this there are many names for it uh the so three different listeners told us three different names for it eric writes in to say he knows this game as telephone pictionary Lindsay says she has played a boxed version of this game called telestrations and then renata says she played an online version of this game called drawception so it seems like the idea is so good it has come about many times through convergent evolution bravo yeah uh, or rebranding at least i mean all of these titles are just far classier than what we were dealing with. I like it. Drawception, especially. That's a nice one. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. 
A-S-T-E-P-R-O, allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. All right, now here's one from Dan. Dan writes in and says, Kia ora, Rob and Joe. I am writing in response to your episode on The Telephone Game. As my trade is in theater and comedy, your discussion around the recounting of stories via oral tradition and the omission of detail via retelling got me thinking about the stage play Mr. Burns by Anne Washburn. The play deals with many of those themes in a very clever and funny way. The play is in three distinct acts. The first is immediately after a series of simultaneous nuclear meltdowns across the grid have reduced the United States to a post-electrical civilization. A small group of survivors sit around a campfire and pass the time and reconnect to their pre-meltdown lives. They attempt to recall an episode of The Simpsons, the spectacular Cape Fear episode. While some of them weren't familiar with the show, we see others teaching the other individuals the material secondhand. No, no, it's excellent. And then he does the thing with his fingers. Or, and is it then that he steps on all of the rakes? We watch them change a televised story into an oral tradition, teaching the characters, the gags, and the references, initiating the acolytes. Love this already. Yep, yep, yep. This sounds fun. 
Uh, the second act is set approximately 20 years later. The group have become a company of traveling players and travel the post-electrical wasteland performing episodes of The Simpsons live for water, coin, and food. We see them rehearsing the couch gag at the start of the episode and all dressed in costume as the various characters and see how The Simpsons characters are shifting from cartoons to mythic archetypal characters. They're obsessed with getting it right. They even do ad breaks. And there's tell that over in Sector 19, there's a guy who used to work on SNL. The final act, and the hardest to pull off, is set 75 years later. It is the staging of what is, to all intents and purposes, a religious ceremony, where the personal history of the nuclear disaster is superimposed onto the narrative of Cape Fear. And the Simpsons characters become representative rather than literal. For example, Mr. Burns aptly becomes the fear of radiation. And add in random Britney Spears lyrics, you know that he's toxic, and Eminem references, you get an incredible glimpse of a possible future of storytelling and myth-making all assembled from pop culture. The characters in the play build their own legends and ways to understand the world, ways to pass on their oral history, to warn of the dangers of going into nuclear facilities and the hazard of invisible radiation, all through song, dance, plain song, ceremony, the demons itchy and scratchy, the everyman Homer and his beautiful family, the law and order of Chief Wiggum, and always, always the encroaching menace of a spindly, nightmarish Mr. Burns. It's quite a ride, and if you get the chance, I highly recommend it. Thanks for all you do. The show is a regular part of my week, and I always look forward to new episodes. Dan. Wow, that sounds great. I, I think I would love this play. Yeah, that's 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 inventive. Uh, uh, I have to keep an eye out for uh, anyone putting this on. Um, uh, and, and indeed, yeah, this is, a, this is something that, like I said, um, probably captured my imagination the most in those episodes is this idea of of oral transmission of things that that are culturally important and what happens to those things over time and something like the simpsons i mean it is culturally important you know a lot of the things that we don't think of they're certainly not high culture but they help us understand our our lives that it helps us sort of take whatever kind of challenges we're facing or mundane details of our life and kind of like cast it into some sort of maybe not sacred form, but uh, at least some sort of like humorous and timeless form that corresponds with the, uh, with the saga of the Simpsons. Now, as with any religious text, there are a lot of, a lot of books that are going to end up being thrown out, I think. You know, I'm not a Simpsons completist. I think there's a lot of stuff that, that you're going to end up cutting in order to have a nice, concise scripture. Cape Fear is a good one to work from, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, this next message is a short response to our Vault episodes on the Vegetable Lamb of Tartary. This is from Cindy. <laughs> Cindy says, I submit to you the vegetable ram of Tartary uh, <laughs> picture and link to real included below. I think this is a, a screen grab from Instagram. Cindy says, I re-listened to the vault episodes on the vegetable lamb, and then Amy Sedaris posted this video, decided the coincidence was too great not to share. Thanks for all the great podcast episodes that keep me entertained as I progress through my day. Cindy, what we're looking at here is like an outdoor grill that has a that has a ram with uh, curling horns that might be made of like carrots or peppers or something, but the ram's body with all the wool is a head of cauliflower and it looks really good. 
Yeah, it, it is. This looks nice. I, I remember seeing this uh, on Amy Sedaris's uh, Instagram. Uh, she's one of the few like celebrity types that I follow because her, her Instagram game is, is on point. Um, but I didn't put that together. I didn't think, ah, vegetable ram of tartary here. Very solid. Thanks for sharing, Cindy. I'm, as, uh, I'm not on the gram, so I never would have seen this otherwise. All right. Shall we dive into a little Weird House Cinema listener mail? Oh, yes. This first one comes to us from Carl. Carl writes in and says, Dear Robin Joe, thanks for featuring the 1953 House of Wax. This is one of the first I remember well, due a lot to its 3D effects and Vincent Price. I really liked learning that it featured several actors and actresses that I later liked but had no idea who they were at the time. The scenes I remember the most were when Professor Jared drops Burke's body down an elevator shaft and when he swings with the grappling hook to Kathy's window, both with max 3D jump scare effect. Also, I remember the paddle ball sequences, but over the years, I lost the association with House of Wax. Maybe my nine-year-old mind was trying to make sense of an otherwise somewhat random but fun insertion in the plot. When you're nine, it's like you see the thing where he like fits, the, he like knocks the three different balls from the paddle balls into his mouth all at the same time. And you're just like, is that is that unique to this or is that just something adults do? <laughs> or if this is the first movie, it's like, I guess all movies have this. You're going to want to have uh, somebody doing paddle ball uh, yeah. tricks during the middle of the movie just to keep things rolling. Remember that scene in The Godfather where a guy comes out with a pair of paddle yep. balls? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're, we're in the middle of Solaris and here comes the paddle balls. The balls go in the mouth, the three in the mouth all in a row. <laughs> all right. Carl continues here. At that age, I related much more to the Professor Jared character than any others and was rooting for him all the way to the tragic end. Price's portrayal of him really brought out the pathos and sympathy for his character with formative me. As for Vincent Price, he was a favorite of my parents, dad especially. Later on, we had a coffee table book about him that I enjoyed. He was quite a refined art expert, epicurean, and enophile. That means he was a connoisseur of wines. Uh, and that part helped me appreciate the finer things of life to this day. Later, he got me interested in Edgar Allan Poe, still one of my favorite authors and poets. Another reason I remember this movie so much is that it was one of the few in my early years uh, that we saw in a proper theater. Growing up in a small Nebraska town, we attended many movies, but usually at the drive-in theater, which was way more practical for our family of six on a tight budget. I really enjoy most Weird House Cinema-reviewed movies. I've collected several of them based on your deep dives, but this one was extra special. So many thanks. Now I need to screen it again, hoping I won't be disappointed in its quality without the 3D enhancement and with my adult perspective. But I'll enjoy following the actors more. Best, Carl. Oh, and we have a almost immediate follow-up from Carl, so I'll read this as well. Dear Robin Joe, again, I just finished House of Wax, uh, presumably the, the rewatch here, and I must say I certainly misremembered a lot in the 70 intervening years. The scares wow. I remember were not at all that scary, and the story was more interesting than I remember. I think maybe the 3D made some effects better in the immersive theater experience or something. I also got the window entrance wrong. It was Sue, not Kathy. Anyway, I did enjoy it and will probably watch it again. Just wanted you to know that it was a great trip down memory lane and a good example of a kid's imagination running amok to generate new impressions of past events. And the paddleball guy was amazing. Carl. 
Thanks, Carl. Well, that that's great. I, again, I love anytime we get to hear about people who got to see any of these movies in the theater, be they, you know, older or more recent films. Um, and, you know, this is spot on about Vincent Price. I think the Vincent Price element that he brings is that he makes just about any villain he plays um, likable on some level, even no matter how far they lean into making them dastardly. Um, it's just his portrayal is so alive. It's so charismatic. Uh, he'll win you over, uh, at least to some extent. Maybe he'll cross the line. His character crosses the line at some point in the movie. But, uh, you know, also a lot of the films he was in, there's a certain balance of camp that allows you to, to go ahead and root for the villain because you're able to, to separate yourself from it. So, yeah, even as he's, as he's about to cover Sue and Wax, uh, you know, you're still at least halfway rooting for him, you know. Maybe he was right to do that. <laughs> Maybe we yeah. all should be turned into wax pictures. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, yeah, like I said in the Weird House episode, I mean, yeah, the, that's that Vincent Price magic. Uh, even as Prince Prospero in Mask of the Red Death, the character is supposed to be just cruelty, decadence, and wickedness incarnate. And yet you still, you, you kind of like him. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we got to wrap it up there for today, but we've got plenty more messages to read uh, when when uh, listener mail comes around again next week. That's right. And when does it come around? Well, it arises from the mists every Monday. Uh, that's that's when uh, listener mail arises. Uh, but hey, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, that's when uh, that's when you'll encounter our core episodes of stuff to blow your mind. On Wednesdays, um, a monster fact or an artifact creeps into the scenario. And by Friday, well, there's no stopping a Weird House Cinema episode uh, from rampaging across the feed. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.